Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. today is Matthew 14 verses 22 through 33 and you may locate the text in your pew Bible on page 892. Please pray with me. O Lord our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side where he dismissed the crowds. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat battered by waves was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. just before the pandemic, and I was reading a little book, and there was a page that caught me up short a bit. It humbled me a bit. It's written by Mark Laberton, who is a pastor. He says, a young person came to his church one Sunday, and he noticed he was new, and so he struck up a conversation with him. He learned he was a grad student at the University of California and was new both to California and to church. Mark asked him, so what brings you to church? This young man said, 
He'd been asking some questions about his life, and that led him to church. And he said, I've been to a few churches, and they talk a lot about Jesus, and they talk about the world, and I appreciate that. He said, I guess what I want to know is if I hang around your church, will I meet people who are like Jesus? Wow. What would you say? It's a humbling question. It seems that we ought to be sure, sure you will. We're, we're all disciples of Jesus here. We follow Jesus. If you hang around here, you'll meet people like Jesus. There's another part of me that wants to say, I'm not so sure. I, I love Jesus, but I can't walk on water. I'm not much like him. I'm I'm a guy of ordinary faith. I mean, I'm the one who says, help my unbelief every week. Were someone to ask you that question about village, what would you say? Are there people like Jesus here? Peter was the first disciple to follow Jesus. The invitation of Jesus was to follow him and get a life, the life that God intends Come and follow me, Jesus said. In following, Peter witnessed Jesus heal his mother-in-law and numerous other people. It would be to Peter that Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That was a bad day. But it would also be to Peter that Jesus would say, you are the rock on which I will build my church. Peter's name actually means rock. It would be Peter who stood slack-jawed, begging Jesus, let us build three booths, let us stay right here on the Mount of Transfiguration. It would be Peter who foolishly would draw a sword to defend Jesus from Roman soldiers, only to be told that's not how the love of God works in this world. Peter would have his feet washed, his eyes opened, his mouth filled with bread and wine, and it would be Peter who, by the fireside, would say, you've got it all wrong. I've never met that guy. Don't know him at all. And it would be Peter who says, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. I'd rather be out there with you. The story is the disciples are at sea, the wind and the waves are beating against them. In the midst of the storm, Jesus walks to them on the water. The disciples react as they should. They are terrified. People don't do this. They can't do this. The one they see has powers that are beyond human capacity, so of course they're terrified. But Peter, he says... I want to come out there with you in the midst of the storm, out of the safety of the boat. I want to walk on the waves like you. The other disciples, I can only assume, join in a group eye roll, knowing that what Peter is suggesting is impossible. You can't do this. Nobody can do this. But Jesus... He says, sure, come on, I got you. 
Come on, you step out of the boat. And just like that first day when Peter dropped his nets to follow Jesus by the sea, this day he leaves the boat to follow Jesus on the sea. And for a moment, he walks on water. For a moment, it might have been hard to tell which one was Jesus and which one was Peter. Okay, so what is this story about, really? And what is it not about? If I ask you how many of you have walked on water, I doubt many of you would raise your hand. And if you did, stick around. We'll find people who can help you. This is not a story about having the power to defy the laws of nature. If it were about that, it might be cool, it might be interesting, but it also would be useless to you in the living of your life, wouldn't it? No one is going to say, now, if you really have faith, you can walk across the Missouri River. No, that's ridiculous. Christian faith is not about circus acts or circus tricks, and to reduce the story to such belittles its real message. So, how do we read this story? What is it really about? If you read Scripture with a careful eye, you will notice that water is often a symbol of a variety of things, but often Water is a symbol or metaphor for chaos, the storm of life, the messiness of the world. It's there in the creation story. It says, in the beginning, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. It was a formless void. It was chaos. Life was not possible. It required an act of God to bring some dry land, to put, an, to put a limit to the water, a limit to the chaos that life might exist. Go to the other end of the book, the book of Revelation. It says, on God's promised day, the sea will be no more. John is not writing like a travel agent to tell you, sadly, there's no ocean in heaven. No, his point is to say that God, in God's promised day, when it comes in all its fullness, the chaos that is so much a part of our lives will come to an end. If I understand it, walking on water is not about aquabatics. It's about following Jesus through the chaos of our lives, choosing to walk as He walks, even if the whole world says you can't walk that way and survive. When Peter walks on water, he looks like Jesus. He follows close enough that it's hard to tell one from the other. After a bit, after a bit, uh, Peter takes his eye off Jesus. He begins to notice the wind and the waves, and it's there when he's distracted from following that he begins to sink. But for a moment, Peter walks just like Jesus walks. Life is chaotic, 
And I think part of what Jesus does is he, he shows us who to be in the midst of the chaos. There's a lot we can't control. There are a lot of things that go wrong, and they're beyond our capacity to address. There are a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and it's beyond our capabilities to do much about it. But Jesus shows us who to be in the midst of a chaotic world. I learned a little bit about the chaos of life and a bit about myself when I was in elementary school. Dave Davis was the cool kid in fourth grade. Did you have a cool kid in fourth grade? Dave Davis was the cool kid in fourth grade. He was handsome, although we never would have used that word. He, he was funny, and at recess, people would gather around him, throwing their heads back, laughing at what Dave said. Others who missed it would say, what'd he say? What'd he say? He was athletic, and, and he was just cool. Everybody wanted to be Dave Davis. Robert Martin was also in my fourth grade class, and he was anti-cool. Robert was awkward. He was a little bit overweight, not very comfortable with himself. He had glasses like these that kept sliding down his nose. He, he, he was good at math, but nobody cared about that. He couldn't catch a ball to save his life. And in kickball, you could throw him out at first base even from the outfield, although he never kicked it to the outfield. And then there was me. I was never cool. I know that stuns you. <laughs> I was never cool, not by a long shot. I wasn't particularly awkward. I was just excessively bland. One who would boast no reason to be remembered at all. You know, in the yearbook when they wrote, you know, one most likely to succeed, one most likely to become a pro professional athlete, undermine it, just said, who is this kid? It was my turn to pick someone for the kickball team. Dave Davis was picking for the other team. He picked Frank Chambliss and then looked at me and said, so R, what are you going to do? There were three kids left, Robert and two girls. In the fourth grade, no guy wants a girl to be kicked, picked before him for kickball. Dave Davis was just waiting to pounce on Robert for being picked after a girl or on me for picking Robert. I looked right at Robert and said, I choose Carla. I knew Dave would ridicule one of us, so I chose Carla and threw Robert under the bus. I would like to tell you that I chose Carla out of some sense of empowering women, but that's not the truth. I would like to tell you that I didn't know that I hurt Robert, but I'm sure I knew exactly what was happening. I just didn't care, or, or better said, I cared more about my own awkwardness, my own insecurity, my own discomfort, more than I cared about Robert. Now, as a kid, I had a lot of learning to do, some of which I have learned. 
But the chaos of life starts early, and it never ends, and it often grows more complicated, and it's in those real-life moments that we have to decide, are we following Jesus or not? It's really in those simple moments of encounter with neighbor that we have to choose. Are we getting out of the boat? Or are we going to stay where it feels safe? Those chaotic moments when we have to choose to love our neighbor or not, it's there in the midst of the wind and the waves that we, that we have to decide, are our choices going to be shaped by our own fears, our own insecurities, our own selfishness, or are our choices going to be shaped by Jesus? Am I making any sense to you? That's why I was a bit unsettled when I came across this young man's question. If, if I hang out at your church, am I going to meet people like Jesus? There's a part of me that says, no, you're going to meet people like me. And I threw Robert under the bus. There have been some other encounters more recently, too. I'm just choosing not to tell you about those. But Peter makes a seemingly unreasonable request when he asks, tell me to come to you. In the midst of the chaos of this world, I want to learn to walk like you walk. And I'm thinking, come on, man. He's Jesus. You're not Jesus. Get back in the boat. You can't do this. He's Jesus. And that's absolutely true. But what's also true is Jesus, crazy as he is, says, sure, come on. You can do this. Jesus could have said, are you kidding me, Peter? Kids, don't try this at home. This is only for the Son of Man to do. I can walk on water. You, on the other hand, will drown. But no, Jesus, he does what he is so good at. He invites us to do that which we think is impossible for us to do he says, go the second mile, turn the other cheek, never let the sun go down on your anger, love your neighbor, love yourself, love your enemy. It sounds about as crazy as walking on water, doesn't it? We may think it's not in us to live like this, to walk in this chaotic world the way he does, but we have to at least admit this. He keeps calling us to do it. So he must see something in us that we don't always see. He must see some capacity in us that we struggle to see. This is also true. From time to time, I look at you, and you look like Jesus. Look, I, 
we're the church, which means we're a collection of ordinary people. And we mess it up at times. We fall short, sometimes desperately short. But I've also seen you love with a generosity that is inspiring. I've seen you risk compassion that some folks would deem unreasonable. I've seen you care for one another, refusing to let go of hope even in the darkest hours. I've seen it. Right now, our students are in the Dominican Republic. They're attending a worship service that's going to last about four hours. And they are going to meet people of deep faith and people who are so impoverished it would challenge anything you have ever imagined. And I promise you, they are going to see a glimpse of Jesus in each other. If I hang around your church, you ask, will I meet people like Jesus? This is what I would say. Yes. Yes, you will. They are also flawed and broken and afraid and sinful. But their failings do not define them any more than your failings define you. We are never defined by the worst in us. We are defined by the best in God. The clearest way I have ever seen Jesus is in people like you. And from time to time, you will see them forgive 70 times 7. You will see them turn the other cheek. You will see them love friend and even enemy. From time to time, you look at these people here, and you would swear they could walk on water. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.